3, verses 9 through 18 tonight. So open your Bibles to Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 18, and we'll study tonight, a sum, uh, or begin to study, Paul's summary statement, which is going to, in effect, say, just in case you didn't get it, just in case you think there's a loophole or that you don't fit in the category of an immoralist or a moralist or perhaps a Jew, I'm going to make sure you understand what I'm saying is the entire world needs a Savior. The entire world has a need for justification. Now, this section is rather long, but, but we can, I think we can do justice to it because quite a bit of it is Old Testament quotation where Paul is validating his point. Exactly verse 9 We'll have to spend probably the most time in. Paul says, What then? Are we better than they? Not at all, for we have already charged that both Jews and Greek are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Then in verse 13, Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Then in 15, their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. And finally, verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. That's as far as we'll go tonight. We'll take a look at verses 19 and 20 next time. So in Romans chapter 3, verse 9, the key phrase is, All are under sin. So tonight we're going to look at a summary statement of all the truth that Paul taught between chapter 1 verse 18 and chapter 3 verse 8. And again, Paul's saying, just in case we miss the point, Paul is going to summarize by stating that all are under sin, there are no exceptions. So in case someone was reading Paul's letter, said, well, you know, I don't think I fit any of those categories. I don't know how you do that. You're either a moralist or an immoralist. But if they say, well, I don't fit those categories, Paul's going to say, well, just in case you're the type of person who is looking for an out, there isn't one. There has never, ever, ever been born on this planet someone that was not born with the need for a Savior. Never. Even the infant even the one who is mentally deficient, mentally retarded, even those have a need for a Savior. It's not as though they're born holy. They still have a need for salvation. And there's, there's a way that God in grace has worked that out. We've studied it in the past, and it's not our subject tonight, but he will take care of those uh, folks. All of us have a need, and that's what Paul wants to make clear. There's going to be a short parenthesis in verses 19 and 20 regarding the purpose of the law and all this, and then Paul is going to turn to the divine remedy to this terrible dilemma that he spent so much time talking about, which will be faith in Jesus Christ, which is a remedy that I trust that all of you here tonight have already utilized. If you haven't, you certainly need to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. So Paul begins by saying, what then are we better than they? And he answers, not at all. Historically, there's been a great deal of discussion as to who Paul is referring to with this we here, where it says, are we better than they? Does he refer to the Jews as a group, or perhaps to himself and his ministry team? And that's a legitimate option, because if you go back to verse 9, he's talking about his ministry team. I mean, to verse 8, he's talking about the ministry team. Or is he referring to the world in general? 
an argument can really be made for all three of those, but he's probably focusing in on the Jew, considering the flow of his argument and the fact that he's going to use extensive Old Testament quotations to validate his argument. You see, if, if he was talking, say, strictly to the Gentile here, it wouldn't make a tremendous amount of sense for him to, to use such extensive Old Testament quotations. They wouldn't know what he's talking about. It wouldn't really validate the point. So I lean toward the fact that Paul is, is speaking probably to all men, but especially still speaking to the Jew. I, I kind of think the Jew's probably still stunned at this point of reading Paul's letter. So he wants to make sure that everybody understands Gentile and Jew are on equal terms when it comes to the judgment of God. Gentile and Jew are under equal terms when it comes to the judgment of, of God. The Jew had an unquestioned advantage in that God had spoken to them and had given them promises that he will not take back. But we saw that they did not take advantage of the advantages that they were given. And they as a people, with some very notable exceptions, rejected the revelation of God and did not follow the pattern of Father Abraham in faith. Even today, even today, if you spend much time talking to your Jewish friends, and I hope that you do, you'll find that they too have rejected the pattern of Father Abraham and are attempting to work their way to heaven. Some, some I think probably believe they're going to heaven because they're Jewish. And then others are attempting to work their way to heaven, which by the way is common all over the world, no matter what faith or religion that uh, we seem to be talking about. So they are not immune to that. Just having the information does not make you right with God. Any more than having a Bible on your coffee table or a file cabinet full of notes from Bible class makes you a mature believer. Just having the oracles of God was not enough. They had to look into those oracles of God and trust the one that gave them the oracles. Trust Yahweh in the Old Testament sense. Trust the Lord for eternal life. So what then? Are we better than they? No, not at all. And Paul says, for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. Another way to understand that would be to translate it, we have already accused all people, whether Jews or Greeks, of being under sin. And, and in Paul's day, that would have included the whole world. You were either Jewish or you were Greek in terms of uh, Jewish thought, and certainly in terms of Paul's thought. So he is including everybody. And so Paul is going to tell us here in verse 9, He's going to make a purpose statement for us. Just in case we missed it, all people need justification before God, no exceptions. This is a really important issue for Paul to make clear before he moves on to the divine remedy that we'll start to study in chapter 3, verse 21. We're studying the need for justification. Starting in chapter 3, verse 21, we'll find out how we get it. But before Paul moves to how we get it, he wants to make sure that everybody understands you need it. There are, there are folks today, and, and some well-known, some not, that don't like the bad news, good news approach to presenting the gospel of Jesus Christ because they'll make a case that say, well, the gospel means good news. That's what it means. So why do you have to tell them about hell? Why do you have to talk about sin? Well, my retort to that is, is I would give that some credence, but the way Paul outlined his argument was giving you bad news and good news. 
So I hate to fall back on this, but it was if it was okay for the Apostle Paul to present it that way under the ministry of the Holy Spirit, then I got no problem doing that. Now, now really, when you witness, though, you've got to see where people are. You know, if if somebody comes up to you like a man did me when, one evening, I had, had prayed in the morning for opportunity to give somebody the gospel. And at the end of the day, I was having just a normal conversation with a guy, and he broke, breaks in and says, hey, listen, what do I need to do to be saved anyway? I fell on the floor. I had prayed for the opportunity, and he just completely changes the subject and asked me that. Now, should I give him a bad news, good news approach then? Probably not, because he's asked me, what do I need to do to be saved? What do I need to do to be rescued? He wouldn't have asked me, asked me what do I need to do to be rescued if he didn't think there was something to be rescued from? So I moved right straight on to a, the, the positive aspect, the good news part. But there's a lot of folks that aren't there at that particular time, and you need to start where they are. So if a person doesn't see a problem, Paul's point is, why would they seek a solution? If they don't see a problem, why would they seek a solution? It would, it would go like this. So maybe a question would be, you, you go up to somebody and say, hey, friend, are you saved? And... If that's where you started, and that person has no frame of reference for where they really are in terms of their relationship before God, they may say, from what? If they're thinking, and they're not just going to fall into the Christian jargon trap, well, what am I supposed to be saved from? And that would be a legitimate question. So Paul's going to answer that. And I know it's been kind of, we have studied it in an extended way, but I don't think you'll ever forget it. I certainly hope you won't ever forget the categories of persons in that all need it. So Paul says, we've already charged or we've already accused both Jews and Greeks that all are under sin. What about this phrase, all are under sin? I, I think the best way for me to, to, to show it to you is to diagram it. That's man and includes man and woman. I haven't really gotten into the, the genderless pronouns yet, but just everybody's included here, and, and Paul says we're all under sin. If I was to diagram it, I'd diagram it this way, and I'd put arrows down, like this. And at this point, there's no way for man to get out from under sin. At least Paul hadn't presented it yet. Now, not only is he under sin, he's under the penalty of sin. He's under the power of sin. And he's under the presence of sin. presence, right? But, but he's under all three of those. The, the penalty, the power, and the presence. And actually, Paul's going to unpack that in the rest of this epistle. He'll, he'll unpack how we uh, deal with that. There's only one way out of this dilemma. Paul start, will start talking about it in chapter 3, verse 21. There's only one way out, and that way is the cross. That way is faith in Jesus Christ. One way out. And not a dozen. It doesn't matter what culture you live in. There's only one way out. Now, the beautiful thing is, everybody, it's an open door. Everybody can walk out it, can walk out that door. Because Jesus Christ paid the penalty for everyone. But there's only one way out. Now, this is a, a preview of something that's to come. But once a person does exercise faith and exit this, are they now under the penalty of sin? Say no. Absolutely not. As soon as you exercise faith in Christ, then you are no longer under the penalty of sin. 
once you exit that, are you still under the power of sin? Sometimes. Sometimes. Right. That would be Romans 6. Most of the time, unfortunately. But let me, let me put it to you this way. I, I tricked you, but are you under the... Are you positionally under the power of sin? No. No. Are you experientially under the power of sin? Often. Okay. So, so we can... I'm going to cross that one out because at least positionally you are not under the power of sin, although Paul's going to tell us we go back to that all the time like we would go back to a, an ex-husband. Uh, and, and that ought not to happen either. How about the presence of sin? Well, no, that's, that's an example he's going to use. Yeah. How about the presence of sin? We are under the presence of sin until when? Until we exit this earth. So, but, but, but the main thing I want you to see, that the, the one you can't miss, is that we're no longer under the penalty of sin. Acts 16.31, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved right then. It's not like you have to wait to the future for that. You are a saved person right now. But there's only one divine remedy. I'm going to talk about this a whole lot more on Sunday, but let me bring it up now and we'll unpack it a little bit more. It just so happens the, the issues in First Peter happen to intersect the issues in Romans that we're, we're studying right now. But if Christ paid the penalty for sin on the cross, and if the atonement is unlimited, meaning he paid it for everybody, he, John says he's the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but for the sins of the entire world. If those two things are true, and they are, we can't validate those biblically. Why does Paul say, regarding the unbeliever, that we're all under sin? You might say, well, I thought Christ took care of the sin problem on the cross. Why does Paul say, presently, this is not, you all were under sin. Why does he say you are all under sin? Another way to put this, and it has been put this way, if Christ paid the penalty, and yet the unbeliever is still under sin, doesn't that amount to some form of judicial double jeopardy? And really, as it complicate the matter further, if we looked at what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, speaking to the Ephesian believers about a time before they were saved. He's looking back and talking about the time before they were saved. He says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. I thought Christ took care of the sin issue. You say, well, that's just Paul. Well, no, it's not just Paul. What about Christ? Jesus told the Pharisees, I said, therefore, to you, you shall die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you shall die in your sins. Both Paul and Jesus make it very clear that the unbeliever is under sin. One might say, well, Jesus was speaking before the cross. Maybe that's the answer to it. Yeah, but Paul wasn't. Paul was speaking after the cross. Listen to this carefully, please. Christ's substitutionary death was deficient for none, sufficient for all, efficient only for those who believe. It was deficient for none, meaning he died to pay the sins for everybody, anybody that wants it. It was sufficient for all. It was a complete payment. For everybody. It wasn't like he paid all my sins 
and then got to somebody that he knew was never going to trust Christ and didn't pay for theirs. It was deficient for none, sufficient for all, but efficient only for those who believe. Now, you may think we're splitting theological hairs here, but there's a real important reason why we would do this. Payment was rendered on your behalf and my behalf. But the full benefit of Christ's work on the cross is not applied to you personally until you believe. There is no forgiveness of sin until one exercises faith in Jesus Christ. Now we're going to unpack that quite a bit on Sunday. And I know in, in the past there's, uh, there's been quite a lot of discussion about this, but especially about the idea of uh, the uh, double jeopardy clause. You know the problem with the double jeopardy clause? You've got to find it for me. You've got to find it biblically for me. Because, and then you're going to have to do something with these passages that say that the unbeliever is presently dead in his trespasses and sins. So I think the, uh, the, uh, the double jeopardy clause was, clause was a nice idea, but it, it really doesn't accurately portray what the Bible says about it. So we'll study a lot more about this on Sunday morning, 1 Peter 3.18. But let's move on now to verse 10 as Paul validates his point that all are under sin or all need a Savior. He says, as it is written, this is a formula that Paul typically uses to introduce quotations from the Old Testament, but nowhere else does he make such an extended quotation. And nowhere else does he use so many different Old Testament sources in one short passage like this. In fact, he's going to use at least six Old Testament sources in defending his position. His purpose in citing these verses is to clearly substantiate the accusation that he makes in verse 9, and in particular, the accusation that he makes that sin is universal. This is fairly easy to categorize, so if, if you're inclined to mark your Bible, if you're taking notes, you might want to look at it this way. Verses 10 through 12 develop the principle, there is no one righteous. There is no one righteous, that's 10 through 12. Verses 13 and 14 describes sins of speech, each line referring to a different organ of speech. Look at verse, if you just glance down, verse 13, their throat, uh, their tongues, uh, lips and mouth. So in verse 13 and 14, we have sins of the tongue or sins of speech. And then in verses 15 through 17, uh, those verses focus on sins of violence against others. And finally, in verse 18, Paul kind of bookends the whole thing. And he repeats the assertion that none is righteous. And we'll see that a lack of fear of God equals unrighteousness. So it's bookended with sins of the tongue and sins of violence in the middle. Now look at chapter 3, verse 10, second part of the verse. There is none righteous, not even one. And then verse 11, there is none who understands, there is none who seeks for God. Verse 12, all have turned aside together, they have become useless. And then finally again, there is none who does good, not even one. You, you, you think Paul's trying to make the point? If you think I'm driving at home, I'd like to have been one of the people that was originally listening to this. They say, I get the point. Now, Paul is quoting Psalm 14, verses 1 through 3 here. And it's, if you 
if the Psalms are your favorite, you'll also recognize that he's quoting Psalm 53, 1 through 3, because it's almost identical, Psalm 14 and Psalm 53. And Paul's going to quote, his quotation is going to align very closely with the Septuagint, which was the Greek rendering of the Hebrew scriptures that was made a couple hundred years before Christ. What Paul is saying is that there is not a single person who, apart from God's justifying grace, can stand right before God. Not a single person. He says there is none who seeks God. First, there's none who's not righteous, there's none with understanding. Then he says there's none who seeks God. This is a confusing passage because if we look through the scriptures, there are a whole bunch of passages about people seeking God. So why does Paul say here there's nobody that seeks God? Well, think back to the fall. It's the easiest way that I can explain it. Think back to the fall after Adam and Eve had eaten the fruit. What did they do? They ran and hid. What did God do? He went after them. When Paul says that no one seeks God, human beings wouldn't if left to their own devices. But remember... God made the first move. We couldn't make the first move as the creature. He went looking for Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve didn't go looking for him. God sought them. God made the first move. And he does this with all mankind. That's why we go back to a first event like Adam and Eve. The invitation to come to God is universally extended. Sometimes theologians call this common grace, although there's more to common grace than just that. But in common grace, the invitation to salvation is open to anyone who would come. And then you have an opportunity to seek God. So that's what Paul means in, uh, in verse 11. When we get to verse 13 and 14, we see the sinfulness of human speech. In verse 13a, Paul is quoting Psalm 5.9, and then he'll quote a little bit later Psalm 140, verse 3. He says, their throat is an open grave. Describing the throat as an open grave highlights both the inner corruption and the deadly effects of the speech of hateful people. If you've ever had the sad fortune to be around a decaying body. You know, you don't want to be there for very long. In in the first place, other than being nauseating in terms of its odor, it's very unhealthy unhealthy for you to do that. Maybe you haven't been in the presence of that, but you probably have been in the presence of of a decaying animal. That's probably a lot more common. I remember one time we had put some mouse, uh, rat poison, poison for mice out in the house. One of them died in the wall right as we put the house on the market to sell, right at the front door. It wasn't the best atmosphere because it stunk to high heavens, right there in the entry hall to the house. It stunk, it's, that was used to be Ann's house. It stunk to high heaven, and you couldn't get in the house without going past that odor. And it took several days for us to get it out of there. We, we tried to cover it up any way we could. You know what? That's, that's how God looks at the kind of bad things that come out of our mouth. In, in scope or Listerine, is not going to deaden the odor. It's absolutely repugnant. Their throat is an open grave. 
with their tongues they keep deceiving. This phrase, their tongues keep deceiving, refers to deceptive flatteries of those people who really intend to do evil. Have you ever spotted somebody like that? You know, there, there are people that will come and they'll, they'll say nice things to you to encourage you. And that's great. But there are also people that will come and flatter you because they have evil intentions. And that's sinful. He goes on to say, the poison of asp is under their lips. This is a quotation of Psalm 140, verse 3. And it reminds us that this old nursery rhyme that we've considered so many times Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can be just as poisonous. Words words can destroy marriages. Words can destroy relationships between parents and children. Words can destroy friendships. Words can destroy churches. Words can destroy your Christian testimony. So don't... don't uh, the nursery rhyme was fine in one sense, particularly probably for little boys, you know, you, you know, sticks and stones will break your bones. But listen, don't worry if somebody calls you something on the schoolyard. And we ought to say that as parents. But deep down, you really know that hurt them, and they're not going to forget it. I remember stuff that people said to me when I was a kid. You know, if it was bad enough, you do too. And you, so you know exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, when we get to verse 14, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness... You know what? Uh, bitterness is a hard thing to keep hidden. It's a really difficult thing to keep inside. You might do it for a while, but sooner or later, it creeps out. Sometimes we call these things um, Freudian slips. Well, sometimes Freudian slips can be funny, but other times, they're not very funny at all. You know what? People spew it out because they've been storing it up inside. They and I'm not saying that you do like one psychologist told me one time, that she tells her clients to go out to the train tracks and just scream at the train when it goes by. Just scream all the profanities and all the evil things you want. Just scream and get it all out of you. <sighs> Boy, I feel better. No, the bitterness isn't still inside you. You just expressed it to a train. And, that's, and, I, and I hope that you, you got that visit at some sort of discount because it's ridiculous. <laughs> No, what you need to do is figure out the source of the bitterness, the root of bitterness that's welling up within you, and get rid of that, because otherwise these things are going to come out. The, the lack of forgiveness, you, you, may, you may think that you're forgiving someone else, spouse or friend or a parent, you know, in years and years and years, what, but what you're really doing is clenching your teeth. You know, you're, you're putting your shoulder into the wind, but you're never really forgiven, whatever it was that either really or allegedly happened. And then at that critical moment, you can tell that bitterness comes out. So that's why he says whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. These sins, all of them, the sins of the tongue, I mean, the throat being an open grave, the tongues that deceive, the poison in speech, and then the bitterness that comes out, it all reflects something that is on the inside. That's the inside coming out. One of the most silly things that we say, we all say it, every single one of us, We'll let something spurt out, and then we'll say, well, oh, I didn't mean to say that. Well, where did it come from then? You know, yeah, you meant to say it, or you meant it, but you just didn't want to say it. You regret having said it. We'll use that as an opportunity to apologize for having said it, not act like somebody else was inside you and they said it. 
No, I didn't do it. See, you're still not taking responsibility for it when that happens. No, gosh, I'm ter- I'm terribly sorry. You know, I'm terribly sorry that that came out. You know, and I need to work to change that. Can you for- can you forgive me? You know, instead of just saying, "Oh, I didn't mean to say that." It's kind of silly, actually. Verses 15 through 17 quote Isaiah chapter 59, verses 7 and 8, and describe sins of violence against other human beings. Their, their feet are swift to shed blood. That's murder. But again, going back to our discussion of the moralist and the immoralist, the moralist could say, wait a minute, my feet are not quick to shed blood. I have never murdered anybody. I don't fall under this category. Remember what Christ said in the Sermon on the Mount? If there's hatred inside as far as God's concerned, then you're already a murderer. Now, as far as the state's concerned, you're not. And we all better be very grateful that the state doesn't use God's standard on the Sermon on the Mount in terms uh, with regard to executing punishment. Otherwise, there'd be nobody there to pull the plug or to insert the two because we'd all be guilty of this. But their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. And the path of peace they have not known. In in the context of Isaiah chapter 59, this is actually an indictment against Israel. They had forsaken Yahweh, and having done so, it was really next to impossible to recognize a Jew of that time from one of their pagan neighbors. Maybe with their accent, maybe with the language that they spoke, but not in terms of their behavior. It was virtually impossible to distinguish one from the other. So it was an indictment against the nation Israel. There are more things that Paul could have brought up. He could have brought up categories of other kinds of sins, but I think this makes the point, and he, again, he's going to bookend it now in verse 18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And this is a quotation, finally, of Psalm 36 in verse 1. Again, this is the most extensive quotation list that Paul has anywhere in his writings to make a point. And I wondered as I was saying this, why why would you do that? You know, it would seem like maybe one verse would would cover it. I think Paul understood particularly that Jewish mind that no matter how much they looked at the Old Testament, there were there were parts of it they did, just didn't want to see, just like the disciples didn't want to see Isaiah 53. Now, they wanted the the, the parts that had to do with the king coming and setting up the messianic rule, but they didn't want the suffering servant. And I believe that, that Paul is doing this, and he, he'll make the point clear later on. He's almost doing it through teared-up eyes. It's breaking his heart to have to do this, but he's telling his countrymen, just being born Jewish doesn't get you saved. And I'll make the point to you. Just being born Baptist doesn't make you any closer to God. Just being born in a, into a Presbyterian family, just being born into a Bible church family, doesn't make you any closer to God. Now, it may give you certain advantages. I hope the children that we've been praying for that are born into Pine Valley, I hope they have an incredible advantage. That being they get the gospel from a very young age, both here and that their parents give it to them. But as a friend of mine once wrote, you can sit in the driveway all day long and not turn into a car. You can attend church all your life 
and that doesn't mean you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean you're out from underneath the penalty, the positional power of sin, and then one day the presence of sin. I think that's why he goes into such an extensive validation for what he's doing. He doesn't just assume that we're going to buy it, and certainly doesn't just assume that the Jews are going to buy it. So he goes back to the Old Testament scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, and he shows it was there all the time, guys. Not making this up. Not coming up with some new theology. It was always there. But for some reason, we get blinded to certain aspects of Scripture. So finally, in Psalm 18, this is a bookend for the original searching given in verse 10, that there is none righteous. Here Paul says that there's no fear of God before their eyes. They don't have reverent respect for God or, actually Greek word phobos, they don't, they're not afraid of God at all. Secular humanism is not new. It was present in David's day when he wrote Psalm 36. It was present in Paul's day when he wrote Romans 3. And it is certainly present here today. In fact, most would tell you, most scholars in this area would tell you that secular humanism is the largest religion in the world today because it pervades other faiths as well. Secular humanism is basically the creature elevating himself in his own eyes to the position or the status of the creator. Now, how silly is that? It's pretty silly. But we still do it all the time. We I'm talking about as a culture, certainly not you, and I guarantee I don't elevate myself to the status of God. Not at all. One thing that we have to, if you hadn't realized this yet, you're the creature, you're not the creator. You better get that relationship straight. Otherwise, you're going to fall into this trap as well. But this type of person that elevates themselves to the position of God, has no fear of God. Think back to the original sinner, and I'm not talking about Eve or Adam. The original sinner was Satan, Lucifer. Lucifer apparently had no fear of God. If he would have, he wouldn't have dared gone in and said, I will be like the Most High God. He wouldn't have dared done that. So these people have no fear of God. Perhaps it's because they foolishly said in their heart, there is no God. Because if you really truly recognize that God exists and that he's the creator, how could you not have some reverent respect? How could you not tremble in his presence? Perhaps in their intellectual brilliance, they became fools. I think we all know people who have an IQ that's off the chart. But at the end of the day, they are fools because they've said there's no God. And I believe, at least it's my view, they say there is no God against the best judgments of their own intellect. I believe, like Paul, that they have to willfully suppress the knowledge of the truth. They have become brilliant fools. What a shame have an intellect like that, to have that advantage and not use it. So we'll, we'll cover this parenthesis in verses 19 and 20 next time, but again, Paul's point here in verses 9 through 18, all people need justification before God, no exceptions. Tom, would you close?